Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Rob Dunn will join us to discuss Never Home Alone. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Show. Well, sometimes we may think we're home alone, even when the floors are sparkling clean, but as pointed out in the new book by Dr. Rob Dunn, we're never quite home alone. Guest today is Dr. Rob Dunn. He is a professor in the Department of Applied Ecology at North Carolina State University and in the Natural History Museum of Denmark at the University of Copenhagen. He is the author of numerous scientific papers and in five books on the subject, and his new work, Never Home Alone, From Microbes to Millipedes, Camel Crickets, and honeybees, the natural history of where we live, explores this topic for a general audience. And Dr. Dunn, very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, my, my pleasure. I'm, I'm delighted to talk to you. This is really a fascinating book you've written here, uh, Never Home Alone, where, where you sort of explore all the different that live in our house. I'm curious, why did you decide to write the book? Well, I mean, we've, we've been studying. So I started off as a tropical biologist, and I studied tropical biology because there was this sense that you could like both understand the general rules of life and under any new leaf, you could find new species, new behaviors. And through the course of my career, I eventually drifted more and more to working on people's backyards and eventually kind of tipped into houses. And there was a point in the lab when we realized that all the stuff that I'd done in tropical forests that we could also look at in houses, and they weren't really any better studied than was a you know, rainforest in Peru. And, and so we became fascinated in the lab, which was trying to understand, like, what actually are we waking up amidst? And so I've worked on that for 10 years or so now. And, and most of that work has been with the public. And, and at some point, we just had enough of a story to tell that it was a book, and it was a book that felt like uh, we should write. And probably should mention that you're actively involved in citizen science. Are these samples that uh, people have collected and then handed to you? Or who are we talking about when we talk about people's houses? Yeah, it's it's a mix. I mean, sometimes we go into houses and we take really intensive samples or do an experiment. Um, sometimes people uh, are sending us swabs from their homes, you know, so uh, swab some dust and, and then we work to study that dust and figure out what was on the swab. We have a project right now called Never Home Alone Like the Book, but on the iNaturalist platform where people can take pictures of the animal species they see in their houses. And so really all over the place, but recognizing that when we're studying homes, that very often the people in the best position to make new observations are are people uh, who are not necessarily scientists in their own houses, you know, whether they're 8 or 80 or anywhere in between. And how wide a net have uh, you cast with looking at uh, people's houses? I mean, I think we know, we know the most about how 50 houses in Raleigh, and we know a little about several thousand houses around the world. And we know the least probably about, you know, small tropical houses. Uh, but we know we know something here and there all over the place. And that's been one of the really fascinating bits is that, like, A, we don't know what's going on in Raleigh, but we really don't know what's going on in a house, uh, say, in the Congo or I mean, even tropical Australia. And so every time we look, something totally new emerges. Which do you think is more fascinating, then, the, the, the fauna in Raleigh or, or that in the tropical rainforest? 
Well, they're different. So, I mean, I guess I, ex- I expect like what's living in a house in a rainforest to be unknown. But we, when we first started studying houses in Raleigh, I think we didn't, I mean, we expected to find some intriguing things, but we didn't expect it to be fundamentally unknown. Uh, but for example, in the first 50 houses we sampled in Raleigh, we found more than a thousand uh, animal species. And so in 50 houses in a relatively well-studied place, a thousand animal species. And so it's crazy. And so they're surprising for different reasons. And so what kind of animals have you uncovered here? Well, what entomologists thought we would find, well, I should say, like in the late 1600s, there was a sense of wonder about what could be studied in the home and wonder about small species. And with the germ theory of disease, there became a sense that anything small was kind of suspicious. And so we moved progressively toward uh, approaches where more and more of our time was spent trying to kill small stuff around us. And so one of the things that that did was it led to a focus among scientists who study houses on how to kill stuff. And so to the extent that we do know about life in houses, it tends to be the stuff that nobody likes. And so that's what everybody expected us to find. And so we did find some, you know, German roaches. We found some bed bugs, not too many. We we found, you know, house flies, again, not too many. But then we found literally hundreds of species of spiders. We found book lice in every house. We found a camel cricket species the size of my thumb, uh, native to Japan, that was known to be in the U.S., but not known to be super common, and it was incredibly common in houses. There's a spider in my house that I didn't know was there until we went to study my house that uh, spits a venomous silk on its prey. Uh, So it, like, runs around your kitchen. It's teeny tiny and delightful, just spitting a ball of magical silk. And, and so there's a uh, wasp that's really common that lays its eggs in the egg cases of cockroaches. As much magic as, as you want to look for. You mentioned the camel cricket. What are these camel crickets and what, what are they good for? Yeah, so this is, a, this, is a, this is one of my favorite stories about what we've discovered, in part because it reflects like how little of scientists we know and how much the public has to offer. That We, we asked the MJ Epps, who was in the lab at the time, uh, asked the public, do you have camel crickets in your house? And so we sent an email to a lot of our participants and projects. And within a day, something like 500 people responded. And there were people who said they had them and people who didn't. And what was weird was it didn't match what we knew about the native camel cricket species of North America. And these are kind of cave crickets that have moved into basements early in uh, American colonial history. And so the first response always in those cases is for scientists to kind of think, well, maybe the public screwed this up. So MJ sent an email asking for people to send pictures of what they'd seen. And when she did that, what she found was that, no, no lo and behold, we, we had screwed up in, in that what people were finding in their houses was not the native camel cricket species, but this really big introduced species that we more or less weren't aware was, was common that had moved house to house across North America. And so we thought that was super cool. We published a paper about it. We're like, ooh, everybody's going to love this. And we got responses, but per your comment, the main response was, how do I kill it or what good is it? And so that then sent us to a whole new phase of research, which was to try to think, well, can we use ecology and evolutionary biology to predict what use it might have? And so we teamed up with some other colleagues who know about um, industrial needs for microbes and, and started to think, well, maybe this camel cricket might have microbes in its gut that can break down hard to break down stuff. And one of my colleagues, Amy Grundon, works on what's called black liquor. And black liquor is the stuff that when you make paper, it's what's left over. And it often gets burned. And that's the awful smell when you drive past a paper plant. And so we tried to figure out, did the camel crickets have microbes in their gut that could break down this nasty stuff? 
And lo and behold, uh, Stephanie Matthews, who's working with Amy and with me, uh, found four species of bacteria that could break down some of the stuff in black liquor, and one of them could break down the stuff even in the alkaline bath that it typically is in. And so here was this amazing thing that in the end, these camel crickets that people are like, what good are they? They could turn an industrial waste product basically into energy. All in somebody's backyard there. Yeah, basement. My, it was my, my, yeah, I, think, I think that one came out of my basement. <laughs> are the large majority of them pests? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think, I mean, it's, it's a little bit complex because what we call a pest is really culturally contextualized, you know, so like partially it's what we learn to not like. And so I would say, like, if we look at things that are actually dangerous, that might do us some real, real harm, the number of those species is teeny. You know, there are 50, 50 or so bacteria species on Earth out of millions or even trillions of species that actually are harmful to humans with functioning immune systems. And by the same token of the like the animals that can show up in your house, the proportion that can actually do you any harm is teeny. And so most of these species are either benign or beneficial. And like spiders are a good example of that, right? Like the people get scared of spiders, but the vast majority of spiders are just sitting there eating stuff you like even less than you like spiders. And so, and so they're, they're a service industry. Found a lot of microscopic bacteria as well that were unexpected? Yeah, I mean, we, we found, um, I mean, with the bacteria, they're sort of, it's kind of like a gradient. That, so first of all, we found uh, tens and tens of thousands of species of bacteria in houses. But the one end of the gradient is what we get in houses if we seal them all up, like a Manhattan apartment. And when you do that, it kind of looks like a person melted in there because it's just like, person microbes everywhere and almost nothing else. And, you know, that always grosses people out, but it's just the consequences of our bodies being biological. And the other end of the spectrum is, say, a farmhouse with farm animals with the windows open. And then you get all these microbes that are drifting in, microbes from the animals. And it, it, it's looking ever more clear that it's that apartment that, that's more problematic than the farmhouse and moving to that world that's just dominated by our own microbes that we're predisposing ourselves to a whole suite of autoimmune disorders, allergies, asthma. And, and so part of the story that, that I tell is really about not only what we find in houses, but what very often seems to be missing from houses. Sort of make that point about the biodiversity. Is, it, is that just sort of a function of cities that sort of crammed in or we're just clean things up so we eradicate a little bit of that diversity or what's going on? Yeah, I mean, so it's it's partially the cleaning. It's partially the sealing things off. You know, if you never open your apartment, if you have an apartment and never open the windows, think about the trajectory a microbe has to take to get into your apartment. And so which which things are most likely to come in? It's mostly the stuff on your body. And then the other piece that's changed is that I mean, we no longer go outside. The average uh, person in America spends 80 to 90% of their time indoors. And so that's, you know, 23-ish hours out of the day. And so it means that the exposures we have indoors become actually more important than they were historically. And so if we can't get exposed to the microbes we need indoors, we really don't have any other conduit. And one of the things that becomes really interesting in that light is that it looks like, especially in urban environments, people with dogs are at a reduced risk of allergy and asthma, at least their kids are. And what we think might be happening there is that that dog is sort of your last vestigial connection to nature when the dog goes out and brings a few microbes in from Central Park or wherever. And, and, and so, I mean, that's, I think it's telling. Like, it means it's a good thing to have a dog in the city, but it also means, boy, we have to get back outside or open the windows or reconnect. 
sort of highlight the unexpectedness of all the the can be found living around the house? What would you sort of like people to take home from the book here? I mean, I, that our daily lives are inescapably biological, and that it's to our benefit to manage that biology in ways that make us happier and healthier. And I think it's also to our benefit to find wonder in the, the biodiversity we see every day. Because if we can't find wonder in the biodiversity we see in our ordinary da- daily lives, that kind of disconnection from the living world of which we are composed is trouble. All right. Well, we were just talking with Dr. Rob Dunn. He's a professor in the Department of Applied Ecology at North Carolina State University. His new book is called Never Home Alone, From Microbes to Millipedes, Camel Crickets, and Honeybees, The Natural History of Where We Live. And Dr. Dunn, very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, thank you so much. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.